Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. And I'm going to do a little tiny intro here. We are talking this week about religious trauma or spiritual abuse and trauma and what that is, what that means. Let's go diving into it uh, in terms of our brains, our bodies, our, our trauma responses. Where does this stuff come from? How is it that religion as a topic or practice can be traumatizing to people. What is that about? And how does this relate with children? Because that is always uh, paramount on all of our minds is our coming generations. Are we indoctrinating them to the point that they can't think for themselves? Or are we giving them the tools that they need to navigate life successfully or are we kind of bouncing between those two poles <laughs> and, and how does our, you know, our relative views of this also play into it? Because a, a lot of parents out there raise their kids in a religious household. I was one of them uh, raised in a Scientology household and think that they are moral upright, you know, uh, solid citizens doing their kid uh, a real favor and giving them a real leg up in the world by introducing them to extreme religious belief. And I'm not necessarily the person who's down with that, right? I think that there is another uh, way of looking at that, but it's not necessarily that it's all, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to set the stage here a little bit in that parents really do mostly want to do good for their kids, but sometimes they do so in very misguided ways. Okay. So that all being said, this week, I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> welcoming Dr. Daryl Ray. He is the president of the Recovering from Religion uh, Foundation. And uh, Daryl, welcome to my show. Would you like to say what else you have in terms of your credentials? Because I'm, I'm sure I'm uh, failing miserably here in describing you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I oh, apologize for that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I'm president and founder of Recovering from Religion and the Secular Therapy Project, which I'm sure we'll mention a bit. Yes. Uh, both published uh, books on sex and God, uh, how sexuality is distorted by religion and uh, the God virus, how religion infects our lives and culture. Right. And um, I'm a psychologist by, have been a psychologist my whole life uh, in one shape or one form or another through clinical psychologist, counseling psychologist, organizational psychologist. Uh, I've, I've gone through the gamut of, of psychology stuff, but now, now I've for the last uh, 15 years have focused on, on the psychological effects of religion uh, on, on all aspects of being a human. So that's, that's what brings me here today. And it's, Excellent. And it's good to talk to you again, Chris. I think it's been about five or six years. Yeah, early. it has. I was going to mention you you were on my podcast way back in the day, and we talked a lot about the um, sexual stuff and religion and how uh, that gets, uh, how do I put this? Um how people get messed up <laughs> from that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a technical term, messed up, right? Um, but well, very uh, much so, very much so. And I and I loved having you on back then. So when you reached out again, I was like, oh, hell yes, we're doing this. I could spend yeah. all this time just talking about what your work with the Recovering from Religion uh, Foundation and group. But we're going to talk a little bit more specifically here today about religious abuse and trauma. Maybe start off with... Um, 
Well, where should we start off with maybe defining the term and what it is that we're talking about exactly? Uh, yeah, right. So a trauma is uh, trauma results from an, an event or a series of events or a set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or threatening. And, and that's important. Mm-hmm. And that has and, and it has lasting. Of, and here's another key ingredient. It has lasting effects on the individual's ability to function physically and socially and emotionally. So if if somebody has an event like, let, you know, let's say you're in a car wreck, serious car wreck, and that can be a traumatic experience um, that can affect your your ability to function and in, in driving a car in the future. You, mm-hmm. you may you may have a and develop a phobia or something, you know. Uh, same thing where a bomb goes off, you know, you're in a war zone. You can get PTSD because of that traumatic event. And it it, it in, interferes with your physical functioning. Your what I mean, you, you know, you may you, you may not have the ability to negotiate your environment anymore. You may want to stay in your house or your basement. I mean, there's there's we have all sorts of stories about soldiers coming back from the war, any almost any war, and how how they can't function in in the society that they were perfect functioning perfectly fine in before they went off to the war. Mm. So that's what we're talking about is people people have had an experience that has profoundly affected their ability to to live in the world in some way, shape, or form. Okay. And it, it and and could we also then corollary, I suppose, would be, or another way of putting that might be they have experienced events have occurred in their life or to them directly that have impaired their ability to lead what we might think of as a quote unquote, normal functioning, rational life. Yes. Right. Right. And their perceptual framework is, is distorted enough that they see things or or they perceive the world in the way that prevents them from negotiating the world. You know, Mm -hmm. they see the potential for bombs everywhere. Uh, or they see the potential for abuse in any potential uh, um, life partner or sexual partner. So you know their their perception is is really distorted um, because of the of the trauma. In fact, we even have because uh, you started off this whole show with the with the notion of childhood indoctrination. Mm. There's really a really good test. I'm going to just throw it out here early in our conversation called the uh, adverse childhood experiences. Uh, test. It was developed by the Center for Disease Control about 15 years ago or so. Mm. It's em- empirically validated out the wazoo. It's it's scientifically very, very valid. And uh, it's only got about nine or 10 questions. You can go online right now and just look it up, a- adverse childhood experiences. <laughs> no, you don't have to, but you can if you want. <laughs> but if you're listening to my voice and you want to do is stop the podcast and uh, and go look at it, it's fine. Because all it does is ask you some questions about your childhood. And from that, we can ascertain if you experience potentially, I want to underline that word potential, um, adverse experiences that are now leading to uh, trauma responses in adulthood. Mm. So imagine a child who was seriously abused by their parents early in their life um, or a child who was seriously neglected early in their childhood, that can have ramifications in adulthood. And okay. we're going to talk a lot about this because um, 
childhood is where a human being is formed. <laughs> right. I mean, a lot of what who we are and what we are starts there. And I, I'm not saying that it uh, that's our destiny, but it sure does make it hard to make certain changes as you get to be an adult. If if you see potential for danger everywhere in your environment because of the way you were raised as a child. Sweet. Anyway, yeah, adverse childhood experiences, it will help uh, anybody who takes it will be able to get a score and it'll say, yeah, you have a you have a likelihood. It's not a guarantee. You know, not everybody is traumatized by their childhood. Even bad childhoods aren't necessarily traumatizing. But it'll say, you know, based on statistics, you have a, a probability of having having adult um, related trauma, uh, childhood related trauma showing up in your adult life. Okay. And when we talk about childhood trauma and we talk about these um, and we bring religion into the mix, I think that people can become very opinionated very fast. I'm sure you've run into no shortage of that over the years with, you know, how dare you uh, in any way, shape or form imply that my religious teachings of my child are somehow harmful to him. So I guess jumping right to that, because I'm sort of thinking to myself right now as people are listening to this, what is he talking about? What what are you talking about? What would be what would be some maybe specific examples or or types of or ways of um, you know inducing trauma or traumatic episodes in a child through through religious practice? Religious texts and religious practices, um, religious uh, indoctrination, all those things come with a set of psychological tools, if you will, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that I want to I want to talk in some detail about today. And those tools have an impact on your brain. Mm. It, we we cannot everything you do. For example, if you're a two year old child, as you're in, as you're moving through the environment, the culture of your childhood, you're learning a language. Period. You're learning whatever language is in that environment. If you were raised in Switzerland, you're learning German, you're learning French, and you're learning uh, Italian, probably. All mm. three languages. Mm -hmm. But you're not learning Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, and you might not be learning English unless, you know, unless you're in a school system that requires that, which there are. So how does how does uh, that affect your brain? Well, your brain is literally being programmed by the language. We have lots of evidence that the language you use uh, frames your your worldview, frames mm -hmm. the way you understand the world. Well, think about it. at the same time as you're learning a language at two, three years old, you're also learning religion. Religion comes into your brain at the same time as language comes into your brain. Mm. And you don't sit around saying, hey, mom and dad, uh, why are you teaching me German? Why aren't you teaching me Chinese? Mm. You know, nobody does that. Right. Well, the same thing is true. Hey, mom and dad, why are you teaching me Catholic doctrine? Why am I why aren't I learning about Buddhism? That mm. doesn't happen. Your brain is being programmed for the language of your childhood and the religion of your childhood. Mm -hmm. And they're they're using the same pathways oftentimes. And these are really, really deep pathways. And you don't know how that's being uh will be used in the future. The most, the most kind and gentle and well-meaning of all kinds of adults, parents, still are giving their children ideas or sending them to places that will give their children ideas about eternal punishment, about hell, the fear of hell, for example. Mm. And so you may not 
you may not, I, you know, I don't really believe in this health stuff, but I'm sending my, my kid off to a church that has regular lessons on what's going to happen to that child if they masturbate. And you may not even know the child is getting those lessons. You may not realize that it may not be the Sunday school teacher. It may be the child sitting next to you in the Sunday school class that's telling you what their grandma told them about hell. Mm. And all of a sudden, your brain is now programmed with a limbic system programming. Uh, I'm going to talk about the limbic system first. Mm -hmm. The limbic system is the way that causes fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. Those three things come from the limbic system. And they're, it's, a, it's a very important part of our brain because it helps us uh, stay safe in a potentially unsafe world. Mm -hmm. If you go back 10 or ten or 20,000 years in human history, we we're all in an unsafe world. There are lions and tigers and you know snakes and all sorts of things that could kill us. Mm -hmm. So it was good, good to learn. And, and this is underlying, underlying, it's good to learn what to be afraid of. So our brains are programmed to listen to our parents, because if our parents say, don't go over there or the lions will eat you, don't go over there because the hyenas will get you, and don't go over there because that's where the demons live, the child doesn't know the difference between those three things. Right. And in, in a modern scientific world, we, we know, well, there aren't demons, or most people don't believe in demons anymore, but there are people who teach about demons. We also know there's not a lot of lions out here to kill us. So the, the child's brain still doesn't know which one of these things to believe. So it believes them all. Mm. Because quite frankly, the kid that listened to his parents, their genes are with us today. <laughs> the parent that well, very much. The, so. And if I might add, um, you know, this is my own thinking on this, but I'm, but I'm thinking that the reason why it will stick or the reason why the child will continue to believe these things are true is because it will solve that solution or that answer, demons, witches, God, devil, whatever, answers questions in such a way that, um, that the person can go on with their life and think, okay, I've got that solved now. Okay. Now I understand what's going on. Right. Oh, yeah, it's okay. Right. Those voices in my head, those are demons. Okay. Got it. Got it. Right. Then, <laughs> then it's, then it's kind of like there's an answer versus there's no answer. And, right. and in the, yeah. in, in the case of answer versus no answer, I think you'll find most human beings all throughout their life from beginning to end will tend to go in the direction of answer rather than have to deal with the discomfort and uncertainty that comes with not having an answer. And I only bring this up because some people will look at some of these ideas that we are taught or indoctrinated or are led to believe as children, who we, which ideas we hold on to into adulthood, clinging to them. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, because it was a solution to a problem. It answered an uncertainty. It filled a void. And it's better right. to have any answer than no answer. And I just wanted to kind of, I don't know why, but it just felt important to add that into the mix here as to why kids would adopt this. Work for it. Yeah. Because the child, you've solved that problem. You can go on to solve other problems. The trouble is that ultimately, um, religion creates a distorted field. Right. So perceptually, you now have you are now going through life with a irrational distortion of what the world really is. 
Right. You now believe that there are demons that live under every mulberry bush <laughs> because exactly. that's what your grand, granny told you, you know. That's right. Uh, and that, that could be reasonably harmless, uh, but often it's not. And often it resides there and raises its ugly head at inopportune times. Right. For example, what if you were, you know, not beaten around, beaten in the head with it, but what if you were told that, you know, touching yourself or masturbating is the devil talking to you? It's Satan living through your body. Yep. Well, uh, you know, it doesn't take much, much of that to make your adult sexual relationships difficult, if mm -hmm. not impossible for many people. That's right. And that's where we, we've, you've probably heard, and most people listening to us right now probably heard of purity culture. Well, that's what purity culture did. It taught people crazy, distorted ideas about human sexuality. And now these people, because I have to work with these people literally every day at Recover from Religion, they're calling us, they're texting us to say, I was raised in purity culture I've been married for three years, and we still haven't had sex. Well, why haven't you had sex? Because we're both shame, ashamed of our bodies, and we were taught sex is horrible until you're married. Of course, after you're married, everything changes. Well, no, the rules don't automatically change because you were programmed as a child to believe these, these things about what sex is and what sex isn't. Right. So I think the underlying piece here is... um. I'm going to talk about three things today, but the first one we've talked about is the limbic system, the fight, flight, or freeze. All three of these systems I'm going to talk about are involved in learning. In fact, if you don't have one of these three systems, you won't learn effectively. Mm. So, but but this was, uh, we started with the um, limbic system because it's the one, the most obvious. Everybody understands fear of hell and, you know, fear of uh, all this, all the fear stuff that religions bring. That's kind of obvious. Just read the Bible. A few, a few chapters in the Bible, you'll find all sorts of fear. You know, you're going to hell if you do this or, or that. Well, do you think that um, do you think that these might also be key recurring themes in religion or in indoctrination, whether it's religious or not? Actually, now that I think about it, it could be ideological as well. Um, certainly, yeah. culty, where fear is the emotion that is so, sort of also one of the easiest to trigger in people. You know, so I think it's sort of lowest common denominator kind of yeah. indoctrination, right? Like we're going to get. Most people, if we scare the shit out of them when they're five or six years old, right? Like, yeah, like yep. kind of easy, easy peasy. It's not hard to do, right? As opposed to yep. trying to create those epiphanal moments, those, you know, Jesus filled me moments. Those are a little harder to do. It's not impossible by any stretch, especially when you get groups of people together. But, um, but I think that fear is is such a lowest common denominator emotion in us, and and again, limbic system. It, it's activating brain functions mm -hmm. that that well, as I think you'll describe here, right? That educate us in certain ways that will stick with us for many, 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 many years, even after we've forgotten yeah. learning the lesson. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even after the lesson's been forgotten, mm -hmm. the the learning is still there. It's. Right. It's overcorrection. It's overgeneralization. Oftentimes, I mean, there's a whole lot of uh, research around this. Been we've had research on this stuff going clear back by 80, 90 years, maybe even a hundred years. Wow! So this almost none of this is new. It's just that nobody has taken the time or has been afraid to apply it to religion. Mm. And I'm I'm going to 
build off what you just said, uh, mm-hmm. ideology or religion. I, I Those two are so darn close that oftentimes I don't even distinguish them. I, yeah. I think you can have an ideology that looks a lot like a religion. You can have a religion that looks a lot like an ideology. So why make a distinction here? I mean, look at how children were raised in in communist China or are raised in communist North North Korea. I mean, the Olympic systems are being constantly activated about, you know, you will be tortured. You won't go to hell because we don't believe in hell as a, quote, communist country. But you'll have that. You'll be tortured to death if you dispute the uh, the uh, deity. That's right. <laughs> Which is, of course, the, whoever the leader is, uh, Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong or Kim Il-sung or any of, you, any of those people. So the limbic system is being used in in all sorts of ideologies. And, you know, whether Scientology is an ideology or not, there was a, a debate about that. But it still uses fear. <laughs> it still uses the limbic system. <laughs> Very much so, so. This is really crucial stuff. To, if you really want to understand, like, why people go extreme and why these fears are so deeply implanted in people, we're literally telling you right now. It's, it's this part yeah. of the brain. So the second, I want to, I want to go into the second piece a little yeah. bit, and that is disgust. Yes, uh, religion uses a disgust pathway. Uh, if you are listening to my voice, I want you to do an imaginary. Uh, I want you to do an imaginary activity right now. I want you a uh, practice. Um, ima- imagine somebody's in front of you, and they've taken a big juicy red apple in their hand as they're talking to you. So you're looking them in the face. They have an apple in their hand, and they reach the apple up to their mouth, and they take a big bite out of the apple while they're while they're talking to you. And then all of a sudden, they notice it's rotten on the inside, and there's half a worm left. Ugh. Ugh. Okay, I I just looked at your face. Yeah. <laughs> and even though it's totally imaginary. You had a lit look of disgust. Of course. Did you have a feeling? Did you have a feeling you want to spit that out of yeah, your mouth? Immediately. Of course. Yeah. And it's an it's an imaginary activity. Yep. That is how powerful the disgust pathway is in our in our neurology. And the mm. disgust pathway does two things. Number one, it helps us stay away from poisonous food. Yep. Or, or know when a food is poisonous, potentially. But almost as important, it alerts everybody around us to uh, the poisonous food. Mm. The disgust you show on your face is a warning to everybody else. Don't eat that apple or check the apples before you eat them, whatever, whatever the the strategy is. So this is a really important thing in in our biology. By by having this disgust pathway, we have prevented or. It, this pathway has prevented a lot of us from dying of poisonous foods and being able to identify something bad from somebody else's reaction. And this is the craziest thing. It's we have a place in our brain that says if he's looking disgusted, then my brain reacts disgusting, too, mm-hmm. just like you did in this little exercise. Even a, I doubt if you have an apple within 20 feet of you and yet you're you've got a disgusted look. So this is what religion does is it takes that pathway and uses it for its own purposes. Mm. So have you ever heard anybody say gay people are disgusting? Sure, sure, sure. 
Yeah, right. Think of all the terms that people apply. Uh, those uh, those Catholics are filthy. Mm-hmm, Think of mm-hmm. all the terms that are applied by religions to other people and other groups, outgroups, if you will. And you'll see that d- the discussed pathway. Oh, yeah, I, I could never I, I can't even understand how gay people. Oh, no, absolutely. In fact, probably the most um, well-known version of this in terms of its use in propaganda, uh, which is akin to indoctrination, right? They're both accomplishing the same purpose of Mm -hmm. forcefully changing minds. Um, I think back to, of course, you know, the classic example of the Nazis, right? Where all the Jews were vermin, were rats, were, you know, were things that elicit by mm-hmm. by design, they were things that elicit a disgust response. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. So we could point to that. And it's, again, just making the point of building on ideology and religion. Are they? How do you tell the difference? Right. When it comes to this level yeah. of, of manipulation. Yeah, you you can't tell the difference. But when you see disgust being s- applied to something besides food, yep. You want to pay attention if it's close to food. But anything else, you're probably buying into an ideo- ideology. There's something, some, uh, it's stealing, it's stealing that pathway for its own benefit. In this case, religion is stealing the discussed pathway to make you more, uh, more loyal to the religion of your birth and more repulsed by any other religion that might try to take your brain. Yep. Because religion is a, is like a virus. It infects brains. It's like <laughs> COVID virus. <laughs> COVID virus infects your lungs, but uh, religion infects your brain. Okay. And when a Jehovah's Witness, when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and knocks on it, what they're trying to do is sneeze on you. They're I trying see. to give you their disease. Wow. It could be a Baptist handing Baptist handing you a, a chick track. It could be a Catholic priest trying to tell you you're going to hell. Whatever it is, they're trying to get into your brain because religions can only propagate through one brain to the next brain. Religions don't propagate through sneezes. That's the way COVID does it. But so religions have to have a way to get from my brain to your brain. Right. The most efficient way to do that is to have children and then indoctrinate the children. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're we're talking so much today about childhood indoctrination and its long-term effects and potential trauma in, in adulthood. Right. Let me challenge you so, on something right now though. Let me ask you something sure. that is that and and I you and I are Almost exclude. I'm almost wholly on the same page. Okay, so I don't want to, you know, make this some like problem. But I am going to say though that isn't comparing religion to a virus a, a sort of appeal to that disgust response? It is, isn't it? <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> and the and the only reason, right, that I'm that I'm like doing that, right, is because I have to say, right, that. There's a little bit more to religion than just a mind virus. And I and there's social yeah. components and stuff. And <laughs> I only put that out there because I don't want people walking away from this thinking, you know, that I am like black and white on the subject of religion. But at the same time, this is my channel and this show and and what Daryl is doing and, and our work is about fighting abuses in this in this area. And it's rife with abuse. So it's not hard for people like us to look at religion and its negative effects on people and its abusive effects on people, especially kids and not make those connections. 
right? But I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here and make it seem that that's all there is to religion because it's a big, wide topic. That being said, bad ideas and abusive behavior are not okay no matter what. So exactly. Yeah. Right. So please, please carry on. Anyway, I just had to well, get I, that out there. When I wrote, when I wrote the God virus, my, my book, the God virus, it was just, it struck me. That's why I wrote it is how similar biological viruses operated with respect to religion. Yeah. But, and, it's, and it can be I, contagious. I, I mean, no, no doubt it can act that way. It's very, it's very contagious. Yeah. And there's lots of examples of religion spreading almost as fast as as disease and yeah. spreading with disease christianity spread through south america in hand in hand with uh, you know scarlet fever or or you know whatever whatever other disease the catholic uh, priests brought with them when they were uh, converting everybody that's right but anyway yeah we don't need to get hung up on the metaphor there that's irrelevant in many ways i i do want to say though that mm-hmm. um i want to read a quote uh Maybe some of your listeners have heard of the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. I think he has a great quote here, and it helps tie this childhood indoctrination. Because what I see is people who are talking about trauma almost never look at religion as the source of the trauma. Or they want to deny it as the source of the trauma because that would imply that their particular religion had the potential for creating trauma. Yeah. So here's what Vanderkolt says. If your caregivers are the source of pain and blame you for what's going on, you blame yourself. So the issue of self-blame is almost universal in chronic trauma and is pervasive in psychiatric practice because so many people are traumatized and have had childhood trauma experiences. There we go. Yep. I'm going to add one little piece to that. I would I would make that and say, and religion is one of the key parts of that pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many mm-hmm. parents, have, how many churches and parents have punished their children, seriously punished them for not learning their Bible verses or or for asking uh, inappropriate questions at Sunday school or for kissing a boy <laughs> uh, or two boys kissing each other or something, you know, little things that are really meaningless in the big picture, but in the little picture devastating to that child who is now yeah. subject to that indoctrination. That's right. And I would add, add that when you teach children supernatural ideas, you, they may be, I mean, we, we teach kids supernatural ideas about things like Santa Claus. That's pretty damn supernatural and that's okay. It's when the supernatural idea tries to, tries to, uh, imply that it has the solutions to real world problems going mm-hmm. clear back to what you said a little bit earlier mm-hmm. that prayer works okay prayer didn't work for your aunt when she died of cancer but yet everybody was sitting around praying for her so now you have a, a supernatural idea if you're a belong to the church of christ scientist not not scientology church of christ scientist you have a supernatural idea that we don't need to go to a doctor we don't need to take aspirin. We don't need to get a vaccine. That's so right. that, and and that leads to behavior in the real world that's detrimental. But it's detrimental to the individual while it propagates the religion. That's right. It's it's many parasites will kill you, but but and they don't really care about you. The parasite 
just wants to get into the next body. Religion behaves the same way. And it behaves in this way. Think about how powerful a parasite is that could take away the desire to reproduce. There's a parasite, I forget the name of it, that infects crabs and literally eats away the genitals of the crab and makes the crab still want to mate, but mate with anybody, female, male, it doesn't matter, because that will help get one para- the parasite into the next next crab, right? Right. Well, Catholic Church is, is like that parasite. It takes away the desire to reproduction for nuns and priests. So they have had their genitals taken from them in the interest of propagating the religion. And you see this in Buddhism, same thing, Buddhist monks who take vows of celibacy. You see it in all, almost most religions sooner or later have some branch that that infects people with the notion that you, you shouldn't propagate. Mm. In fact, I just had a conversation with some Jehovah's Witnesses. Last Sunday, I was speaking in California. These guys overheard my talk and came up to ask me, and they said, we chose not to have children because we were afraid of Armageddon, and we did not we did not want our children to suffer in Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, what's the difference between that and the crab? <laughs> I mean, mm. both are are interfering with reproduction. Mm-hmm. A natural, normal behavior is to reproduce, to want to have children. How powerful is a concept if it can stop you from doing one of the most important biological functions of your entire life? I'll say. That, Pretty damn peril, powerful. Well, it is. So we've, yeah. it's, let me let me comment because um, only because I want to add to what you're saying because I completely agree with you and I will and I will go one further and say not only is it creating a sort of um, well a real problem for the person. Let's put it that way, right? Like a real big problem because you have biological imperatives and you have emotional needs and those don't care about your religious beliefs. <laughs> You know, and they don't and and no, they really they really don't. And yet what can happen? And I think you I'd, I'd be curious about your take on this, because I think what can happen is not only are you unsuccessful at being able to suppress those emotional and biological needs, but they end up because you're putting such a if we will, you're putting such a barrier on the road. If if there's a pathway, if there's a natural road that your impulses are are driving on, and you put a great big, huge, you know, twenty ton barrier in that road called, you know, celibacy, mandatory celibacy. Those urges don't just stop; they go around. They keep trying to get back on the road, mm-hmm. and this is why we see. Well. Spotlight. The pedophile priest. This is why we see, that's right. This is why we see the scandals. And we see it not just in Catholicism. We see it in Scientology. We see it in other places where these natural, organic, perfectly survival-oriented impulses and drives that we have, like reproduce. It's one of the two imperatives of all life is reproduce. Yep. <laughs> and you try to stop that. And you end up with aberrant behavior, deviant behavior, perverted behavior coming from those same impulses. This is, I wanted to emphasize that because this is where I will absolutely agree with you 100% that it does act like a virus. It acts like a, 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 a harmful, 
uh, attack on the person, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, does, to, yeah. to, to have to push their urges and their desires and their needs in all these deviant directions. When if they just left well enough alone in the first place, <laughs> they wouldn't have had that problem. And that's what that's where I these arbitrary demands and and commandments from religion can can really become very, very, very traumatic and harmful when they are butting up against what we're meant to do. And that's yeah. that's where I have a real problem with this stuff. I I, I that's a great way to explain it. The mm. 20 ton block in the road and it will go around. It's like water. It's going to find a way around it. And I dealt with, well, I won't go into detail, but Mm. as a clinical psychologist, I I literally dealt with pederast priests. Um, Mm. Anyway, Mm. and and everything you just talked said fits perfectly for, for those priests that I worked with. But that was, that was 25, 30 years ago when I did that. Mm. Um, Fair enough. So I want to get Fair to enough. the third one while we yeah, still got time. Because absolutely. the third one I think is is more important than the other two in some ways. Yeah. And and that's it's it's an area I never hear anybody talking about. Mm. So that's why I want to make sure we got to it today. And that is attachment. Yes. That attachment is such an important component of the of our social species. Yes. And and we even have some really interesting re- research. Um, going back about 20 years with uh, prairie voles. I don't know if you've ever seen the um, research on oxytocin and prairie voles. Oh, no, uh, I've, I've not seen those related things. I've, I've seen some stuff on oxytocin, but not this. Tell me. Well, so uh, prairie voles are, are unique. There are very, very few monogamous species on the planet, and we are not one of them, by the way. We are not a monogamous species. So <laughs> anybody that says, of course, Christianity says we are, and... Uh, at least Islam is honest about it because you can get like four wives in a in a Islam. Right. That piece they are honest about, but yeah. So prairie, there's um, there's actually four kinds, but there's two main kinds of prairie voles mm-hmm. or two of voles, not prairies. Even prairie voles and mountain voles. Prairie voles are monogamous. They bait and they pretty much stay mated for life, and they raise the children together. Mountain voles look identical. In fact, they're so identical they can crossbreed. So they're not a truly a separate species. But mountain voles are not monogamous. They mate and then they go their own way. And the female raises the young. Huh. So we've got opposite uh, mating strategies within basically the same species. One just lives in the mountains. One lives in the prairies. So scientists came along and says, this is very unusual. There are almost no monogamous species on this planet. But prairie voles are, are monogamous. So let's do a little experiment. Let's take the oxytocin and put a let's let's put an oxytocin blocker in the prairie voles and see what happens. So they block the oxytocin in uh, in the males and females. There's there's um, a sister chemical hormone called vasopressin. I won't go into detail, but it's the male equivalent of oxytocin. So if you block these two. Oxytocin in the female, vasopressin in the male, they mate and go their separate ways. They are not monogamous. All you have to do is change one little hormone. Now, if you go back to the prairie voles and you inject them with extra oxytocin, extra vasopressin, they become monogamous. (laughs) So now now it's pretty obvious the application here. 
why do humans want to mate exclusively for about four or five years? And the divorce rate goes out the roof at about five years after after mating. Well, it's because it takes about five years for a child to, uh, you know, to, to become independent enough that they don't have to be uh, breastfed. So we can now look at this attachment. It's evidence that attachment is somewhat hormonally driven, mm-hmm. and the prairie voles are a model of attachment. We also know that children going back about to almost to uh, 1970s, 80s, when uh, Ceausescu ruled Romania, and they were throwing children into orphanages and not giving them proper care. Oh, they right. Plenty of food, but they weren't getting proper care. Yeah. So the follow-up studies of the Romanian orphans showed that they were permanently damaged for life. There were certain behaviors that just were characteristic of the Romanian babies. And we've seen this in other places. We see the same phenomena in foster children and ado- uh, children who were adopted quite a bit after, because that first six months or so of life is when attachment happens. Right. So children and learn, am I safe in this world or not? Exactly. Could I ask you to clarify a little bit more about the conditions in those Romanian orphanages? Because I want people to understand what you mean when you say they didn't get the care that they needed or required. I want to make it crystal yeah. clear what we're talking about here for the audience, because we're not talking about they didn't get a nappy or they didn't get, you know, uh, a meal every now and again. This was a this was a bit of a different situation. Could you yeah, could you break that got, down? Yeah, they got there were there weren't enough nurses. Number one, mm-hmm. they got, the children were fed properly. There was no nutritional deficiencies. However, there was this philosophy that came from the Ceausescu government, an ideology, if you will, mm. that you do not need to pay attention to children. They'll grow up and be normal humans without all this warm and fuzzy stuff. Uh. So the nurses were actually discouraged from picking up babies holding them, cuddling them, you know, and feeding them while feeding them while holding them. There was a lot of things that natural mothers do that were denied to these children. That was the major difference. It wasn't food. It it wasn't warmth, you know, uh, security. It was the security that comes from the attachment that you get from the caregiver, that that holding and that touching. This goes back to... um, Experiments that were done in the 1960s, the Harry Harlow experiments, I don't know if you've ever heard of those, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where where they would um, put a, a fake mother monkey that was made out of wire with a with a nipple and a baby, and the baby could, could eat, but they, it didn't get any warm cuddlies. And then they could put a, a mother over here that had, uh, that was not real either, but it, it had fur on it, and then they would look at which way the baby would go, the baby would spend almost all his time on the fur mother, the fake fur mother, and just go over to eat to co- and come back. Yep. It it didn't stay with the mother that had the nipple. And what we found was this, this leads to long-term lifetime behavioral problems in those monkeys. Right. Har- Har- Harry Harlow experiments would now be unethical, mm. but we have, we have the data now, but if you tried to reproduce those, you, you wouldn't. But we do we do have the same evidence in many ways from the Ceausescu experiment, uh, natural experiment, if you will, and foster children and adopted children. It's there. Attachment is so important to humans. Exactly. Now, how does this re- how does this relate to 
religion? That's that's the key question. Well, exactly. And let re- me let me let me let me yeah. um, uh, you're going to definitely answer that. And I but I, let me yeah. just uh, okay. let me just say something real fast here on this. OK, because I want to I want to point something out that might have just gone over some some folks heads. And I want to make this really clear because I don't want this point being missed in today's episode. Those monkeys we would not even be able to repeat that experiment on because it would be unethical. Why? Because we're causing permanent lifetime damage in them. That's the degree of severity that a lack of emotional attachment and physical care and intimacy and attachment without those things, life doesn't develop the way it's supposed to. We wouldn't even be able to do that on monkeys again in a controlled situation, yet there are parents who do that to their children every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I just needed to really bold underline italicize that <laughs> because I want to be super clear about that point, right? Uh, it's mm-hmm. important what we're talking about right now on this. And we've talked about organized and disorganized attachment. I've interviewed Alexandra Stain on this on this channel a couple times for this exact reason. Um, This is real life and death quality of life for the rest of your life kind of things we're talking about right now when it comes Mm -hmm. to child rearing. So I just wanted to really put that there in, in, in big bold letters for what you're about to go over. So please carry on. Well, I am so glad you did that because I think that underlines it even better, quite a bit better than I did. I I appreciate Mm. that. Mm. So, uh, attachment, when attachment is happening, is the same time you're learning English, same time you're learning or whatever uh, language you've got, and same time you're learning religion. And what religion does is it comes by and says, we want you, we, 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 as, as a religion, I'm speaking as if the religion had a, a mind of its own, which it, it acts like it does, but it really doesn't. If the religion says, I want to propagate, I want to make sure I propagate. One way to do that is to make sure the religion, the child attaches to the religion mm. and the parents are attached to the religion. Mm. Whether whether they're a, the parent attaches to the child is secondary and maybe maybe even harmful. And the evidence I will tell you is that how many times have we heard you and you especially being in Scientology, that the parents are so attached to the religion that they will deny their own children. They will discipline them. Stun them. Yep. So what what we have here is absolute crystal clear evidence that the parents are more attached to the religion than they are attached to their own children. Yep. Think yep. about that. That again, the power of this ideology to make us go against our most basic instincts of caregiving to our own offspring. That denial of, I mean, and, and it's not just, I mean, I, we could pick on Scientology, of course, but it's not just that. Think about how many other religions tell that if, if if you, if even in the Bible, it says if a child does X, Y, or Z, you're, you're okay, it's okay to stone them to death. You know, uh, yeah. Does say that. Don't. Sorry. <laughs> says it. Uh, Honor your father and mother, and if you don't, what's the consequence? You know, you get disowned by by your family. Same. And many, many religions teach that it's better for you to disown your own children, or if the results are reversed, disown your parents, 
if they don't abide by the religion. So it's really, really important to say, to see, and this is an area that, uh, this is partly why I wanted to talk today, uh, Chris, is because I think this attachment piece is missing Mm -hmm. in most of the theories around the power of religion. Mm. You are, what what I'm trying to say is religion wants to use our attachment pathway in our brain to hijack it. And I use the term hijack very specifically. It's hijacking something that should be used for normal caregiving, normal attachment within a social structure and culture, and being hijacked to propagate the religion at the detriment of the relationship between the parent and the child, and maybe to the detriment of the child itself. How many parents believe and spoil the rod, spare the rod, rod. spoil the child, Uh, and other kinds of notions? Look at the Christian discipline books that are out there. I mean, the woman in Utah, I can't remember her name now. Oh, yeah. Mormon woman that just got arrested for child abuse. And she is teaching other people how to systematically abuse your children. That's right. I mean, if you look at what she preaches, she's teaching systematically abuse your children. Why? In the name of your religion. That's right. Now, if you're a child in that structure, how can you possibly create a, a normal, healthy attachment to your caregiver you can't it's impossible and you will take that through the rest of your life and this is exactly the problem that we've discussed in such detail with the duggars with that that whole that whole shiny happy people thing right dare i bring up um uh the pearls I'm sure you've I'm sure you've run across some of their work, uh, Michael mm-hmm. and Debbie Pearl, right? How to raise up a child. Uh, in mm-hmm. other words, treat your children as though they're donkeys or animals and to be broken mm-hmm. like a horse. That's the broken, exact yep. comparisons that they make in they the literature. Yeah. And this is literature that has been consumed. I'm really sorry to say this because I know a lot of people who watch my show or listen to this. You have you have no background in this or you've got a minimal background or you met some people. But I'm telling you, there are there are way too many families in the United States of America who are raising their children as though those children are animals to be broken rather than human beings to be nurtured and raised and taught and treated as actual human beings. Mm-hmm. that's the, that's the deal. Well, I don't want it to be that way. I don't like that. It's that way. And that's why we talk about this stuff. So if it sounds like we're talking about, you know, people who live on Mars, raising their kids this way, no, they're actually right down the street from you. And that's the reality of the situation, you know? So I just needed to kind of, yeah. again, highlight some of that too, because this is really important stuff. And the, and the Duggars are another great example of what we're talking about. Do you really think yeah. you're going to have healthy, fulfilled attachment with 22 children? Like, <laughs> what are you thinking? You know, like this kind of thing beguiles me because I'm like, how do you even imagine that you are raising these little independent human beings in a healthy environment when you don't even have time to give them? I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. And that's just a numbers game, much less we bring the ideology and religion into it and the the punishment drive that goes on in there. And, and this attachment component is absolutely vital. I am so glad that you are highlighting this. And remember, as we said earlier, all three, the limbic system, the disgust, uh, amig- uh, the disgust system, and uh, the attachment systems, 
all weave together to yep. create a learning system. We, we need all of these to effectively learn about our environment. Now, each of these are somewhat distinct systems, but we have one brain and we integrate these systems to learn about our environment so we can we can survive. Well, all religion does is take all three of these, interweave them together, and then we get into adulthood and we've got all sorts of attachment problems. We now have a disgust of people who are not like us, and we are running away from fear of hell and from other people who might send us to hell. All three of these things come in. And, and excuse me, these, it's like the entire learning system has been hijacked yeah. <laughs> just for the religion. Yeah. Now there's a third one, and we, uh, there, uh, I'm sorry, there's a fourth piece that I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. I don't know where we are in our time, but this is probably... No, that, carry on. Don't worry okay, about that. Okay. This fourth one, I think, might be more important than the other three. Oh. And it's it's even less talked about. And I, I'm going to even give you a term that I made up myself to understand it. I have noticed, uh, I you know, I founded Recovering from Religion. We have a chat line. We have a helpline. We have a phone line. We have resources. We got all sorts of stuff that we help people deal with the consequences Anybody, uh, anybody dealing with consequences of leaving any any religion, Hinduism, Christianity, we don't care. But the one thing we hear over and over and over again is, I left the religion years ago, and I and I still have this desire to go back. I still feel like I'm safer in the religion. Yeah, I, I want to return to my Scientology roots. I want to return to my Joes. Okay, and and then more importantly, I was. People tell us that some of the darkest days of my whole life were the first year or two that I was out of religion. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I was a ship without a rudder. I don't know where to go. I didn't have the skills to <laughs> I didn't have the skills to know how to date 40 year old 40 year old people who who've hardly ever had sex in their life and now they're scared shitless of sex, but they they want, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on. So what I coined is a term called, I call it detachment. Anxiety, mm. detachment, anxiety. Mm. So when people leave an ideology, when they leave a church, a religion, whatever, they're de- detaching themselves from something, which once it starts, uh, once it hits that person, I've lost, I've lost my whole family, I've lost my whole community, I've lost the fr- ideological framework that I lived through. That's a huge black. It looks like you've just gone into a tunnel and you cannot see any light at the other end of it. And you're hoping you can walk through this tunnel and get through it to the other side. But some people get stuck in the tunnel and they don't get out. So they go into clinical depression. They experience literal trauma from having left the religion. They may or may not have been traumatized when they were in the religion, but leaving it causes trauma because we're such social animals. We are attached to people. We're attached to our parents. Our parents won't talk to us anymore. We lose our brothers, sisters. This is a huge deal. And I think it's it's worthy of looking at detachment as a huge problem for people leaving leaving any ideology. Yep. And it's why people tend to go it's why people tend to go back into abusive marriages. Mm-hmm. You know, why my my spouse abused me. I left but I end up back in bed with him. And then three months later, I'm beat up and I'm, I'm leaving again. It's this 
It's this approach avoidance. Uh, it's it's dealing with the attachment that they just can't quite cut cut the rope, cut yeah. cut the links between yeah. me and the religion, or me and my spouse, or you know whatever that was. What have you but found? That, yeah, I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead. The fourth piece of detachment. I think we need to pay attention to that as people, you and I, as people helping people leave religion. They'll they'll tell you how they're feeling, and if you listen, you'll hear grief and loss. Yep. It's as if someone died. Well, somebody did die because your parents died when they said they'll never speak to you again as a Jehovah's Witness or as a Scientologist. You have lost. And this is what I call complex grief mm. How? because you can't finish the grieving process. The person is still alive and might call you any day, but, there's, but I can't speak to them. If I call them up, they won't answer the phone. So we've got a grief and loss process going as a part of this detachment component. So and anyway... No, that makes sense. Complex. No, that makes real sense to me. That's why I'm sitting here nodding so vigorously while you're talking. I I could not agree more with what you're talking about. Having having one experienced it and two uh, witnessed it firsthand with lots of people that I've done consultations with. I'm not a therapist, but mm-hmm. I do consult with people as a sort of you know exit counseling kind of thing. And right. um and I you know and I don't want to blur the lines even using the word exit counseling because I'm not doing therapy, but education awareness, knowledge of this alone helps, you know, a a great deal in overcoming it. But I wanted to ask you, you know, as a psychologist and as somebody who does do treatment with people and has, uh, what are the approaches with this? Because I've seen studies and I think this is a little high, but I've seen studies that have cited as high as 75%, um, you know, sort of cult hopping. They go back into the group they came out of, or they find another group that's, that, that fulfills the needs that they still have. <laughs> I look at it through a lens of emotional needs and fulfilling those emotional needs. That's how I sort of explain it. But I think attachment is another angle or another framing of this that makes a lot of sense. And um, of course, complex grief, as you say, I can immediately go, oh yeah, that makes, I can understand that in the same way I can understand complex PTSD. It's not just a one-off. There's a there's a there's a number of things connected with this. So I guess I, I I'm going on and on about this, but I guess what I'm asking is, um, how do we treat that? How does that get addressed? Well, when you look at people uh, leaving one cult and getting to another cult, yeah, it it oftentimes looks like one person leaving a abusive marriage and turning right around and marrying an alcoholic abusive marriage. That's right. So. What what people are seeking is secure attachment. Well, if you've never had secure attachment, if you don't know what that feels like or looks like, I can come along and say, hey, I will promise you secure attachment. I will give you hugs. I will make you feel welcome here and non-judged and not judged and all this sort of stuff until you get into the cult. And then you realize, oh, I get free hugs, but it costs me something. That's right. <laughs> they're so free. To these free hugs. That's right. That's right. That's right. But what, what I think you're observing, and I, I've observed the same thing, is people cult hop because the cult cults are giving a promising something that you missed as a child. Mm. Now, the question is, how do we treat that? Well, first of all, you have to recognize that your own pattern. Why have you gone from one abusive relationship to another? Why have you gone from one abusive cult to another? Once you realize it, you can say, aha, my brain is looking for something. Let me go to a therapist. 
Let me talk to a therapist about this and let me find new ways of repatterning my brain. Because the beauty and the the good news here, the good news for you and your listeners is that our brains are not concrete. They're plastic. We can learn new things. We can repattern. If you if you have a stroke, uh, if with proper treatment, oftentimes you can regain full functionings, full functioning of of your of your limbs. You know, you may lose the ability in your in your uh, in your left hand to to use use that hand from a stroke. But now, with proper treatment, you can you can do that. So that shows the plasticity of the brain. But until you recognize the problem, we can't help you with the plasticity issue. And any well-trained trauma uh, trauma-trained therapist can probably di- help diagnose and give you uh, a, a more in- an individualized treatment. There's not a one-size-fits-all here. It's not, and I can't slap a Band-Aid over everybody. But but you have to find a therapist that is going to use evidence-based methods and not woo-woo, new age bullshit, or Christian counseling or any of that stuff. And that's why I founded the Sector Therapy Project, because we have 790 vetted therapists that I guarantee you are licensed. They are evidence-based only. They base, they they use science, science-based uh, therapy approaches, and they're secular. They're, they have no supernatural ideas. And that's the key. There's too many therapists out there that think prayer changes things. Yes. And that is bullshit. Yeah. You cannot pray depression away. No, you cannot. So get a, get a therapist. Whether you use our service or not, I, I don't care. Find a therapist that doesn't have supernatural ideas about how the brain works. <laughs> Find a therapist that actually knows how the brain works and is willing to give you the treatment you need to deal with the with the trauma that we've been talking about here for the last uh, hour or so. Yeah. Yeah, big time. I'm really glad you got that in because I um I wanted to highlight that. It's it you know, not all counseling, not all therapists, they're not all the same. And and there's not and there's licensing boards and there are ethical guidelines and those are meant to be followed. And if people are violating them, then they should be reported and dealt with. But there's a lot of leeway. There's a lot of freedom of choice and movement with therapists in terms of what they or how they can approach uh, therapeutic modalities and treatments and programs and and how they put it together and and if they are coming at it from a theistic believer point of view that what you need is a lot of emotional support and a lot of prayer and a lot of reading of the scriptures and things like that that's that's not really therapy that's something else you know and yeah, that's and that belongs in a church it's not therapy and i and i and i think that really clear lines can and should be drawn there because it can become very confusing for people and they can blur those lines and that's never a good idea what do you think about the role? And I always ask this of people when they when they come on who are who are who are therapists and stuff. We might have even talked about this years ago, but I'll ask again. What do you <laughs> think of as the role of education and psychoeducation in this process? Do you think it's important people understand what was done to well, them? Well, that's and how? why. Yeah, that's why I want to talk to you today because uh, we're not here to diagnose anybody. Yeah. I it would be illegal for me to diagnose somebody. You know remotely or from from a simple email or something but what we can do is raise awareness we can here's the red flags to look at if as we said a little bit earlier if if we can recognize if a person can recognize a pattern of self-destructive behavior or self-defeating behavior 
then they could that's a that's a good impetus to find help. And so that's the role of psychoeducation. It's to help people identify potential roadblocks. <laughs> I mean, they may using your I, I love your me- metaphor of a roadblock. Mm. We hit roadblocks, and do we want to keep beating our head against that roadblock? Or do we want to find a way around it? Yep. We may never get rid of the roadblock in the sense that it, it may still haunt us, even in adulthood or in late adulthood. But we can reprogram our brain to just automatically go around the roadblock. For example, I mean, it, it especially especially in sex therapy, there's mm. so many people who are dealing with uh, re- religious trauma within their sexual identities. And I may always have, oh, I may have, what if I find out at 25 years old that I, I'm gay? And yet I've been married for five years and in a hetero, supposedly hetero relationship. Well, I will probably have been really programmed with a disgust notion about gays. So I may always have a little bit. I, I am a I am a disgusting person because I'm gay. Mm. You may never quite get that out of your head, but we can help you program around that. Say, yeah, that was a funny thing to learn. I'm going to move right on down the road. There you go. There's a lot of ideas, crazy ideas that we got indoctrinated with as children, and we carry those on throughout our lives. Some prejudices, some some dumb ideas, you know, anybody who wears red is a whore. I mean, literally, I learned that as a child. If a woman wears too much red, she's signaling. That's what. Now, that 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 idea still resides in my brain, but I don't act on it anymore. At right. one point in time, I would have acted on it. That is a person I won't date, or I will condemn her, or I won't do business. You know, there are things that I would take action on based upon that stupid idea. Uh, so it, we can help. Therapists can help you identify the idea and find a way around it, if not get rid of it. <clears throat> and that, right. that's the short answer to your question. No, awesome. Treatment. Awesome. Well, I think that that is a, that's a great answer. And I... um. I, you know, I'm a big proponent of education and of, um, and of knowing what you're doing, right? Knowing, know, know what you're getting into, know what's happening to you in a therapeutic sense or in a life sense, right? With religion Mm -hmm. and ideology and all of that. And of course, you know, we look at this through lenses of coercive control, right? Because not all relationships have to be horrible and awful and everybody has ups and downs and all of that. But is it a controlling relationship or is it a healthy relationship? There's a difference, you know, these kind of things. And education is where you can learn about yourself and learn about other people and learn how these things work. And so I can't, I can't promote it enough. It's, it's been uh, essential to my own, my own recovery. Um, Because I tell you, if I didn't understand this stuff, my God, trying to navigate relationships in the world and religion and ideology, it would be a mess. I mean, these things are just, they're, 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 they're incredibly powerful influencers on our behavior. And yet we don't even understand how, you know, and, and why we do what we do. So, so I mm-hmm. think these are, I think these are really important. And I think your work is absolutely essential in, in understanding these points you brought up. I mean, the, 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 you know, the fact that you, that you laid all these out, these three or four points and, that each one of them are things I've I've done whole shows on or or really tried to emphasize in the past because they are so important to the work we're trying to do, helping people recover from trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there's one thing we haven't talked about. If you got five more minutes, absolutely, bring it on. Okay, and that is 
Um, cultural trauma. Mm. And again, I don't hear many people talking about this, mm. but I was raised in a in a very religious uh, home and and uh, environment. My parents, my grandparents, aunts, uncles, everybody was religious, and, and I had a bunch of missionaries. What I learned is, you know, you're passing this down from one generation to the next. So this this notion of say spare the rod, spoil the child. Where'd that come from? It comes from a Bible that's 2,500 years old, and so we've got 2,500 years of people practicing this approach to child rearing, and so we practice. We have probably passed the trauma down. I hmm. got to thinking about this. Where does intergenerational trauma come with respect to religion? And we've heard you hear about intergenerational trauma. Uh, for example, you, I've heard a lot of research and talk within the black community around intergenerational trauma as it was passed down from from slavery on down to where we are today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's valuable understanding of of how trauma moves through culture and generations. But I want to apply it to religion. I want to just if you you were raised in Scientology, you might not identify with this as much as some of your listeners will, but I'll bet it still rings a bell for you. Sure. I'm I'm guessing you have heard the song Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a song about singing about my worthless deserve worthlessness and deserving of eternal punishment. That's the song. Now I bet you you may have heard of Jesus loves me. Jesus loves the little Jesus loves me. This I know. Yep. I am weak, but my abuser is strong. Okay, next song here. Trust and obey my abuser. That was my granny's favorite song, Trust and Obey. It just forgot the last two words. Trust and obey my abuser. Right. Now think about this one. The Lord is my salvation from the hell he created for me. Right. People right. are singing these songs. Uh, uh, another one of my favorites, my grandmother's favorites, is Power in the Blood. There's Power in the Blood. But if you read the words of this damn song, it's, I am just a willful, worthless child of my master. And a lot of these have the actual words. They're not even trying to hide this. It's, I'm a slave. Sing joyfully of my, my abuser's power and glory. Just, just. Switch the word God and, and put in abuser, and it, it fits it fits perfectly. Yeah. So these are songs that were written back anywhere from the 1600s to the early 1900s, and we're still singing them today, right. especially Protestants. Catholics have picked up the habit, too. Well, they've always had it, but Protestants are really good at this shit. So this is, uh, this is evidence of cross-cultural trauma. How can you sing that song? And be totally unaware of of how abusive this language is, unless you're actually, you know, the abuser, the child of an abusive parent thinks that's normal behavior. Well, exactly. So I'm a child. Yeah. I'm a five year old child. I have an abusive parent. That's just normal to me. That's well, right. the same thing is happening here. The child of an abusive god thinks it's abusive. It's a normal behavior. I'm just a slave. They use the words slave in in Christianity. It's all over the place there. In Islam, it, uh, the word Islam means to submit, to be a slave to Allah. So this notion of slavery is how much more abusive can you get 
than than to advocate slavery for yourself or for anybody else. Uh, so it's an it's an additional little um, extra extra piece for the same money here, Chris. You don't have to pay any extra. For <laughs> okay, <this>. no extra <laughs> charge. <laughs> well, you're Thanks not for you the know, extra five minutes. No, but it, but we've talked about this uh, so many times, right? I mean, we have loaded language. We have language manipulation. We have cognitive dissonance okay you have like like you're trying to understand like well, well i don't see it as slavery i don't see it as i'm submitting to an abusive god well i get that i totally get that i totally get that that's because that's this that's this view where uh back you know up is down backwards is forwards it's like you know freedom is slavery it's like it's a very yeah. orwellian construct that we're talking about it is you don't, you know, and I get it that some people are going to listen to what we have to say and think we're crazy, right? We're absolutely mm -hmm. nuts. That's not what's intended. But if you to actually break it apart, Daryl's got a point. The words that are being used mean things. And these words are not words of, of freedom and, and free will and have a, have your happiest life. It's submit, it's follow, it's comply, it's, it's, it's conform, this is the language of authoritarianism. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be offensive in saying these things to some people, but it is the fact. And yep. you can view submission and enslavement as a feature. I don't. I, and, and I don't think I don't think my guest does. Right. It, that's not how we're looking at it. So we can depart on this. Right. This can be a point of contention for people. But I, I don't think I have a lot of very heavy, heavy duty religious folks listening to my podcast. But I want you to know we're not doing this to try to we're not saying these things to try to ridicule and laugh. We're trying to point out you know, there's another road here and you don't have to go down the road of submission and compliance and conformity to have a happy, good, healthy life, you know? And in fact, it's a lot better without that. That's what I'll say. <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like to close uh, yeah. uh, with, with one quote. It's from Resma Menachem. He says that trauma in a person decontextualized over time looks like personality. Huh? Trauma in a family decontextualized over time looks like family traits. Trauma in a people decontextualized over time looks like religious culture. That's clever. Now, I added I added religious in there. That's, oh, that's okay. He said culture, but but if you just think of in the context of what we've been talking about, how many entire groups of people on this earth are are ex, are expressing trauma through their daily behavior right. how how is the jewish nation in israel responding to basically what was a new holocaust last week mm. and and you see the entire nation having a trauma response look at how i mean how could a woman in saudi arabia who has to re wear a shador a black shador anytime she walks out the front door how and if she opens her mouth, she could literally be uh, divorced or disowned by her by her husband if she disagrees with him. How how could that not create trauma in a human being? Right, and it's just intergenerational trauma. So when I look at a human being behaving in ways that are self destructive, I think that is trauma acting out. Mm. When I look at a family that has tendencies towards self destruction or oppression or disowning their own children. 
I look at that as trauma being acted out in the whole family. And I also look at cultures and see, you know, how has the trauma of an entire culture, how is it, how is it acted out? I'm a Chinese, Mao Zedong, the Great Revolution, the Cultural Revolution. How did that trauma, and it was a trauma, 23 million people died. Yeah. How did, How is that trauma now being acted out? And I, I don't have a straightforward answer. It's not a A to B line, you know. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. if you look at it in that context, you start saying, wow, that behavior makes no sense. I wonder what could be driving that behavior. And oftentimes it's an intergenerational trauma. That's right. That's, I nailed it. Absolutely nail it. Thank you very much for making these points today, Daryl. These are very, very good ones. I really yeah. hope that 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 the uh, that y'all are, are are picking up what we're putting down here, and I'm sure you are. Uh, I have a I have a wonderfully educated and informed audience, and I'm I'm sure that this is all uh, all relating very clearly to cults, to extreme religious situations, to uh, you know ideological situations, to coercive situations, all the stuff we talk about here. Um, how do people contact or connect with you, Daryl? I'm um, an integral part of Recovering From Religion, of course. They can just email me at daryl at uh, recoveringfromreligion.org. Mm. And if you need help, if you, your listeners need help, they can call in and chat with a very well-trained agent that is non-judgmental and can help you find resources and can even help you find a therapist if you need one. So don't hesitate to call us. We've got, we literally have 430 volunteers in about 30 different countries. And we have, we have our 24 hour time zones covered. We have volunteers from Moscow to Perth, Australia. Literally, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. We even even have a Syrian refugee in Lebanon um, who is a volunteer for us. And he's very good volunteer. I don't know how he does it, but <laughs> we wow. have a lot of really cool volunteers in Romania and Lithuania and Argentina. So um, we we can even help you in other languages, um, not every language, of course, but certainly in Spanish and, and English and and a few other languages, perhaps. But yeah, okay. contact us if you need help. If you got more questions, also look at my books, The God Virus or Sex and God, if you're interested in either one of those topics, and. Uh, I appreciate I appreciate you letting me come and talk to you today, Chris. It absolutely. was a lot of fun too. I, I appreciated that. Good, absolutely. You're a, well, you're, I, a damn, I, you're a you're a damn good um, interviewer. I'm just saying, I like it. Well, thank you, thank you very much. I, well, you summarize you summarize things nicely, and you add value. I mean, not every interviewer adds value. I don't think. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I was going to say, I I definitely feel like there is more here that we can talk about and maybe focus in on, you know, maybe we could do uh, future shows on each one of these things you've brought up as well as additional uh, aspects of this, because this is not something that you cover in an hour. I mean, there's a lot here and there's a lot more to know about it. And you clearly have done so much research. I want to pick your brain more about some of the neuroscience and, and psychology behind this stuff. So, um, so I'm yep. sure we'll be in touch again sooner than later yep. than, uh, than the, the gap we've had so far this time. That's hundred percent on me. I should have reached 
reached out to you a long time ago. So, no, no, I, I'm happy to talk anytime about anything related to this subject. It's a passion of you, as you might have noticed. Yeah, I, I, I feel your passion. Uh, <laughs> excellent. All right. Well, folks, on that happy note, uh, check out Daryl Ray's work, check out his books, and definitely connect up with Recovering from Religion because this is a um, this is a group that's actually represented right here in Denver at the Secular Hub, the, the group I'm part of. So it's it's very much something I think is important and helps a lot of people. Uh, and on that note, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up. I hope you found this uh, show educational, informative, and entertaining. And I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>